So good evening. Can you hear me okay? Oh, so, okay, hold on. How's this now? So, so, all right. Might have to get rid of the polo neck. <laughs> Is that better? All right. I'll try not to go, go quiet on you. So I'm wondering how everyone's doing at this, the end of this third day of practice together. I know some people have been observing how the, the first two days of a retreat are often really difficult. And I don't know, I uh, wonder whether the third day you start to feel like you've landed a bit more, and I'm sure it's different for all of us. But I was just noticing in my own experience sitting here, just thinking, well, what, what's, what am I aware of right now, and particular in, particularly in terms of uh, the qualities of pleasantness and unpleasantness in my experiences? That's what I'm going to reflect on a bit more with you tonight, Kurt, to share a little more on this topic of Vedana. And it's just conscious, actually. It took me by surprise of a feeling of... Uh, happiness and pleasure at the prospect of talking on the Dharma with all of you. And it's not always the case that when one's sitting up here about to give a talk, that that's the predominant Vedana. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really happy to notice that. <laughs> so to, to talk a little more about, about Vedana or feeling tones or hedonic tones, as we sometimes call them. I, I generally, I'm going to use the term Vedana or feeling tones as hedonic just seems a little bit too much of a mouthful. But hedonic tone is, is uh, defined in the Oxford English Dictionary, which I obviously favour, like Chris, <laughs> I live in Oxford, as the degree of pleasantness or unpleasantness associated with an experience or state that can range from extreme pleasure to extreme pain. There's also another, uh, another explanation of Vedana that I, I quite like that came from one of the very earliest um, French Sanskritologists in the uh, mid-1800s, who was trying to explain what the term Vedana meant, and he said it's a kind of irritability, only in a larger sense. And I quite like that, the, the sense that Vedana are irritating. They're kind of what the, the piece of experience that disturbs us. So as, as Chris said this morning, they are commonly uh, grouped into three types, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes known as neutral. And this is really one single, I mean, there may be three kinds, but it's really one single evaluative process that's in operation. It's a bit like, say, having a heat sensor. It may determine things as cold or hot, but it's measuring temperature. And that's also, as I was thinking about that ana analogy, it's also an interesting one, because where does 
cold stop and hot begin. You know, it's very much kind of uh, a subjective thing, isn't it? You know, our perception of what's cold and what's hot is probably very different from a, a cold-blooded animal's, for example. So this uh, quality of Vedana is present in every single moment of our experiencing. And one way of looking at our experience, as Chris said this morning, and as, as the Buddha stated, is that all our experience comes through one of these six sense channels of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the mind. And I know in, in uh, modern uh, understanding, sometimes it, uh, it's said that we have many more senses than this, but the, the other ones are really sort of sub subsets of these broader categories. So in, in every moment of our conscious experience, there's experience of contact through one or more of these sense doors. And with that, there's a perception of what that contact is and a feeling tone that goes with it. And the other two mental factors that are, are present in every mind moment, according to this, this uh, understanding, are attention and intention. But I don't really want to explore that tonight. And because Vedana are so ubiquitous, they've actually, they can actually be differentiated in all, all sorts of other ways. So there's one place in the... In the early teachings where the Buddha says, actually, there are 108 different categories of Vedana. Because if you divide them by the six sense bases and the three, three different kinds of Vedana, and then uh, whether they're based on household life or the life of a renunciate, and whether they apply to the past, present, or future, I think if you do all those multiplications, you end up with 108. But really, the, the salient point is this aspect of pleasant, unpleasant, and the territory in between. And also, as was said this morning, that Vedana can be bodily or mental. So we can have physical, bodily, pleasant and unpleasant experiences. Also, we can have pleasant and unpleasant mental ones. But in a way, really, Vedana is occurring at the intersection of mind and body, so there's, there's a, one can get into a bit of a philosophical discussion uh, around the early teachings and the commentaries about whether they're really an entirely mental experience or whether there's something physical to them. And I'm going to quote you something from Akinchino here because I think he says it very well, this explanation of actually they're kind of, they're a, a, an experience that's really at this intersection of mind and body and see whether this is true for you. Whatever takes place in the body is felt by the mind in the form of Vedana. And conversely, the mind state's hedonic flavor, the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness in the mind, is translated into an embodied expression. To me, that feels to be really true as to how I experience Vedana. So if I'm having an unpleasant thought, how do I know it's an unpleasant thought? You know, I kind of sense that in my body. So what have you personally noticed about Vedana today? Have you had any? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, how many different ones have you noticed? Even if you weren't kind of, you know, you decided you weren't really going to orient to Vedana today, chances are that you noticed quite a few. And if you cast your mind back now, you can remember quite a few. And there are so many of them, aren't there, that are assailing us from all different directions. So one of the uh, similes that's used for them in the early teachings is that they're like winds blowing from the north, south, east, west, from above and below. And there are hot winds and cold winds and dry winds and wet winds and strong winds and gentle winds. But they're there are all these uh, multiplicity of winds coming at us from all sides, and Vedana can, can feel like that. Or they're likened to guests, uh, from, or guests of all different sorts and from all different places who are showing up at a guest house, the guest house of our minds and bodies. So with all these winds and guests who visited you today, you've probably noticed some strong, unpleasant ones and some stronger, strong, pleasant ones. And you might have noticed the different ways in which your mind and your system has responded and reacted to them. And you might also have noticed some more neutral ones or had a bit of curiosity about this neither pleasant or unpleasant or neutral category. And it's quite, uh, you know, once it's interesting that once we start paying more attention to what we think of as being neutral, often it becomes a little bit less clear. Or even if we start paying attention to what we had assumed was pleasant or unpleasant, that the more attention we pay to it, the more kind of uh, um, uncertain that becomes. So... Rather than thinking of neutral as a, as a point that we can really find and stay with, yeah, this, this thing is definitely neutral, I have a sense more that it's kind of shifting, but it's not quite clear yet what it is. And sometimes um, some, some teachers and practitioners have described this more as a kind of zone of indifference where things aren't quite determined yet. It's in, in the middle of the two ends of pleasure and pain, just as actually, um, you know, the, the, the zone between hot and cold is a kind of indeterminate zone. And so these, these feeling tones coming at us from all directions, they're also constantly changing. And one of the things that the Buddha said about them is they're like bubbles on the surface of a stream. They're just constantly popping and bursting and popping and bursting. They're always moving. So how do they? How are they always moving? I was um, on retreat earlier this year uh, at Spirit Rock, and uh, one morning went to breakfast in a kind of somewhat depressed mood, and I can't remember what that was about anymore. I imagine that I might have had a not very uh, restful sitting and possibly some judgment popped into my mind about my practice or something like that or anyway something something was kind of creating this grungy state in the mind and I noticed as I was lining up in the breakfast queue that there was a just an unpleasant feeling tone to my mental state 
And then as I got to the front of the queue, there was this little sign on the table that said hot chai on the back counter. And I immediately noticed a switch to pleasant. <laughs> but because I was being mindful, interested in, in the precision of my moment-to-moment -moment experience, I was, I was investigating, well, what's pleasant here? And I noticed that I wasn't, I had, my mind hadn't got to the point of actually imagining chai and imagining the taste of chai and what, you know, where it might go if I thought, oh, this nice, warm, sweet, tasty liquid and so on. That, was, that wasn't even present yet. And, you know, the, the words hot chai, there's, yes, there's an association of... Uh, yeah, a pleasant idea, but even that hadn't really clocked in. And, and then I realized that what had happened in that nanosecond where I'd seen the notice is that it had punctured that state of mind that was kind of grungy. And so rather than anything pleasant really having an arisen, it had interrupted the unpleasant mind state and the unpleasant mind state had dropped away. And then, of course, I did, you know, eventually in, enjoy the chai and experience a pleasant Vedana connected with that. But in that moment, the, the sense of pleasant was not so much from this thing I associate as being a pleasant, with as being a pleasant experience, but from the dropping away of, of an unpleasant one. You might have had a, an experience like that yourself if you went into the dining room the other morning, yesterday morning, and you were expecting to see oatmeal on the board and you saw bagels if you, if you happen to be a person who likes bagels and eggs. You know. So this is, this is um, part of the experience of Vedana that the Buddha also drew attention to in his teaching. In fact, this is actually, this, this particular piece of teaching is uh, one that was given by one of the Buddha's nuns who was very good at explaining the Dharma. There aren't so many places in the early teachings where the, the teachings are coming from nuns, but she would explain things to people and they'd go and check them out with the Buddha and he'd say, yes, she told you exactly how it is. <laughs> so she's actually talking to her former husband who became a student of hers afterwards. So he's asking her about pleasant and unpleasant feeling. And he says, lady, what is, which is how one addresses a nun politely in those days, what is pleasant and what is painful in regard to pleasant feeling? What is painful and what is pleasant in regard to painful feeling? And she says, friend Visaka, pleasant feeling is pleasant when it persists and painful when it changes. Painful feeling is painful when it persists and pleasant when it changes. Have you noticed that today in the flow of your experience? And it's also, you know, really uh, interesting that how much this experience of pleasant and painful is conditioned by... Um, by the surrounding circumstances and by expectations. So one of the last retreats I taught on, one of my colleagues gave a, a talk on Vedana and she was, she was sharing about some research that she had heard or read about um, on the pleasure and pain centers in the brain. And they'd done experiments where they'd asked volunteers to um, 
experienced different degrees of heat, I think, applied to their hands. I'm not sure if they were immersing their hands in very hot water or whatever, and registering the pleasure and pain response to these different stimuli. And there was a, a degree of heat that was applied that was clearly unpleasant and registered as unpleasant. But later in the experiment, they, they also did this thing where they were telling people what they were going to do. So you had this sense of anticipating, okay, this one's going to be intense, this one's going to be quite mild and so on. And people were told to expect a fairly intense, unpleasant experience. And then actually what was administered was a, mild, a, a milder uh, experience. And actually the, the center that registered in the brain was one of pleasure. So what was actually previously experienced as unpleasant, when the expectation was for something more unpleasant, was actually registered as pleasant. And I find that very interesting, you know. So this discussion of pleasant and unpleasant between the nun Damadina and her former husband Visaka carries on and, and he asks her about um, what is pleasant and what is painful in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And she says that neither plain, painful nor pleasant feeling is pleasant when there's knowledge of it and unpleasant when there's no knowledge of it. And that's kind of an interesting thing to check out too, because um, often what happens with neutral experience or this kind of indifferent experience is that uh, when there's no knowledge of it, it's just or no, no kind of mindfulness present, it just feels kind of boring or blah, or we, we kind of check out from it. And yet if we're mindful and aware of something that's not irritating in some way, it's actually often experienced as pleasant. There's a, a peacefulness to it that can be experienced as pleasant. So we have all these multiple nanostimuli coming at us all the time. You know, if you think about it right now, there are all six sense channels are probably open to varying degrees and operating and so there might be six different sorts of channels on which you're experiencing Vedana and they're all available in any one moment and so our experience of the moment is going to be really heavily conditioned by what we're paying attention to and how. So just a few kind of reflections that are relevant to this. One of the things we can, we can kind of believe about practice and about personal growth work and so forth is that um, you know, what we're supposed to do is go more and more deeply into our unpleasant experiences. And at times this has a, this has a place, the willingness to approach, to stay with and to, to explore what's unpleasant. But going more deeply into the unpleasant isn't always a skillful thing to do. Sometimes what might be more skillful is to attend to a wider range of experience or even remove our attention to another channel. You know. Another um, aspect of this uh, 
fact that the Vedana are broadcasting on all these different channels is that uh, maybe we notice that this natural human tendency that we have to notice, prioritize with our noticing things that are unpleasant. You know, we tend to, this is, this is again part of our evolutionary response to you know, look out for threat, is that we, we tend to notice and magnify um, shades of, or react to, respond to shades of unpleasant more quickly than the pleasant. So another thing that a mindfulness of Vedana can do is, is we can use it to reduce or rebalance some of this negativity bias that we're prone to. So Chris this morning and, and has been talking about um, orienting to, and last night also, how orienting to a pleasant experience can sometimes be very skillful, you know, it's much easier to attend to the breath, for example, or the body if we allow ourselves to really feel what's pleasant and what's nourishing in that experience. Yeah. And this isn't an end in itself, but it's a, it's a gateway to uh, stability and a collectedness and an ease of mind. Also, last night, Chris spoke about um, this quality of viveka or seclusion, one of the things we can cultivate to uh, acquire more collectedness and steadiness of mind, this um, withdrawal of the senses. We also talk about, or teachings talk about, guarding the sense doors, not because you know, the world is a bad place and we want to shut out contact with it, but it can get so overwhelming, can't it? This is one of the blessings of uh, secluding ourselves into a retreat environment is that we simplify the bombardments that are coming at us. And that allows the mind to, to settle so that we can, you know, start to see some of these processes at work. There's enough steadiness of moment-to-moment -moment attention that we can really begin to see what's happening with a different level of clarity. So I want to share tonight a, a teaching that's probably familiar to many of you, and this is the Buddha's um, teaching on the two darts or the two arrows. You probably, if you may be talking about this in mindfulness classes, often, often refer to this simile in its forms. And to me, I, I, I can't hear this teaching enough. And I actually, I'm going to read quite a lot from, from this particular sutta this evening. So it begins like this, it says bhikkhus, so the Buddha is talking to the monks, but really this includes us, this is practitioners, anyone who is um, seriously interested in practice. And he talks about the uninstructed worldling, so an ordinary person who has uh, not studied or contemplated these teachings, and then contrasts that with a, a an instructed noble disciple or a well-taught noble disciple. So 
Oh, you can re reframe that how you will. And I think actually I would bear in mind that we each manifest as both of these in different moments. Yeah. So he says, Bhikkhus, the uninstructed worldling feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And the instructed noble disciple too feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And I think it's interesting to pause there and just check out, you know, have there been moments today where you've been experiencing an unpleasant feeling of body or mind and the thought might have come in, well, if I were a good practitioner, if I'd got this stuff nailed, I wouldn't be having this unpleasant experience. I wouldn't be experiencing an unpleasant feeling tone. Yeah. Or a thought that you know, people who are really advanced in this practice, their lives must be really pleasant. <laughs> you know, they must have a far more pleasant experience of it all than I do or than I'm having. It's so easy for the mind, and I know Chris mentioned this already, to make this assumption that progress on the path is going to mean an ever-increasing amount of pleasant experience and somehow the unpleasant experience is going to, to vanish. And yet this is not what they're saying. Both, both the uh, person who knows nothing about this and the skilled and accomplished practitioner even the Buddha himself will experience all these three different types of feeling tones. So the Buddha experienced backache, he experienced food poisoning, he experienced conflicts in the community, and he experienced personal attacks. And that was all after uh, his enlightenment. So these things keep happening and they don't suddenly become pleasant. But what is the difference between the uh, instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling? So this teaching goes on, and it's usually in the he form, but I've made it she because it provides a change (laughs) and a different perception. You can notice the perception. I don't think, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's anyone here who who identifies as they, so I hope I'm not excluding you too, and I hope the men won't feel excluded. But um, I think we women deserve a bit of uh, (laughs) uh, more of a uh, recognition in the suitors. So, Bhikkhus, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, she sorrows, grieves, and laments. She weeps, beating her breast, and becomes distraught. She feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a person with a dart, and then they would strike her immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that the person would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, She feels two feelings, a bodily and a mental one. 
So this is a, the first arrow and the second arrow, the first dart and the second dart. And here they're described as a bodily feeling and a mental feeling. And that's kind of the simplest maybe way to see it. But it doesn't necessarily mean only a bodily and a mental. It's just the primary and the secondary feeling. Because the first, the first uh, unpleasant experience could be a mental one, of course. And then it's describing this, it's, what it's describing is our reactivity. We have this deep-seated habitual response to unpleasant feeling tone of not liking it and trying to get rid of it. So it goes on. Being contacted by that same painful feeling, she harbours aversion towards it. When she harbours aversion towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency towards aversion to painful feeling lies behind this. So we have this underlying habit of responding to, to pleasant and painful stimuli in these ways. So our deep-seated habitual response to the pleasant is that we want more of it. And I, this classic way that we tend to notice this and we have ample opportunity to do this on retreat is how you're sitting down to lunch and it's something you like and the moment that the first mouthful goes into your mouth and there's a feeling of pleasant the thought is I wonder whether there'll be some more of this you know this is just this is exactly this process that's being described so underneath the liking of the pleasant, there's this underlying tendency to greed or to lust for pleasant feeling. And then this is how the Buddha observes that people respond to unpleasant feeling. He says, being contacted by a painful feeling, this person who knows nothing about the teaching or the practice seeks delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? because the uninstructed person doesn't know of any way of escaping from painful feeling other than through sense pleasures. Now, have you ever noticed yourself doing this? Yeah. Yep, I have too. <laughs> so when she seeks delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling lies behind this. She does not understand as it really is the origin and the passing away, the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of these feelings. And when she doesn't understand these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling lies behind this too. So when we stay in, indifferent to the, or in the indifferent or neutral zone, then if there's no mindfulness and wisdom operating, then the underlying tendency to delusion and to ignorance is reinforced. The, our habit of ignoring or treating as irrelevant or missing the subtle shadings into liking, towards liking and disliking with neutral feeling. So in sum, this untaught person, or the jaya when she's unmindful, uh, if she feels a pleasant feeling, she feels it attached. If she feels a painful feeling, she feels it attached. If she feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, she feels it attached. 
This bhikkhus is called an uninstructed worldling who is attached to birth, aging, and death, who's attached to sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, who is attached to suffering, I say. And the converse. So when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, she does not sorrow, grieve, or lament. She does not weep, beating her breast and become distraught. She feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a person with a dart, but they would not strike her immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that the person would feel a feeling caused by one dart only. So too, when an instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, she feels only one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Being contacted by that same painful feeling, she harbours no aversion towards it. Since she harbours no aversion towards painful feeling, towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling doesn't lie behind this. Being contacted by painful feeling, she doesn't seek delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because she knows of an escape from the painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. Since she doesn't seek delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling doesn't lie behind this. She understands as it really is the origin and the passing away, the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of these feelings. And since she understands these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to indifferent feeling doesn't lie behind this. If she feels a pleasant feeling, she feels it detached. If she feels a painful feeling, she feels it detached. And if she feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, she feels it detached. This bhikkhus is called a noble disciple who is detached from birth, aging and death who's detached from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, who is detached, who is freed from suffering, I say. And this is the difference between the uninstructed uh, worldling and the instructed noble disciple, or the bit of our mind that is practicing with mindful and wis mindfulness and wisdom, and the bit of the mind that is caught in delusion. So there's still Vedana operating, but all these optional layers of suffering and distress that we add uh, are removed. So how do we come to understand the arising, passing away gratification, danger, and escape from all these different types of Vedana? Well, precisely through observing our experience as it's happening. Just as we have been doing and are continuing to do, to learn to do uh, on this retreat. And it's because so much of the, the genesis of our suffering converges at the point of Vedana that they're singled out for a whole channel in the Satipatthana Sutta, in these 
for ways of establishing mindfulness. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because on, on the one hand, they're completely obvious. And then on the other hand, they're not obvious at all. So it's interesting that they're not explicitly talked about in mindfulness approaches, you know, even though that they're implicitly there in all our explorations of reactivity and so on. And things like, you know, we use pleasant and unpleasant events calendars to, to um, help see how we're, we're triggered by these different experiences and very much how conditioned our experiences of pleasant and unpleasant are. I mean, even eating raisins, you know, how, how many people discover that eating a raisin is a whole combination of different aspects of pleasant or unpleasant or taken by surprise, uh, discovering, you know, ways in which uh, this experience is far more complex and rich than, than they thought. So I was thinking about Vedana and this channel and how... Um, kind of highlighting this dimension of experience is seems to me there's an image that comes to my mind is it's a bit like putting the contour lines on a map that previously was completely kind of flat and actually you have this map but we still we're still going up and down like a yo-yo or we're constantly working to go uphill and downhill but we don't realize that there's a gradient there we're just kind of doing doing this thing, which is exhausting, aren't we? We're being pushed and pulled around. But then suddenly, if we, if we become aware of all these contour lines, these different, different um, pushing and pulling of gradient, actually there's, there's a possibility to feel this pushing and pulling without actually just you know, being constantly moved around by it unless we choose, of course, because this is the thing, what we're discovering here is choice. It's not that, you know, a hungry, enlightened disciple of the Buddha would never bother to go and eat or something like that, but there's a choice in, is this a useful Vedana to respond to or isn't it? So just as with gradients, you know, we kind of don't notice when there's a a gentle incline in a slope one way or another, but we really notice if the, the road or the path is going steeply uphill. It's like Vedana also, they, they hijack our attention on the basis of their intensity. This is called salience, you know, what jumps out at our attention. And so our task in practice is to... Um, learn to, to develop a steadiness of attention and a breadth of perspective that kind, can stay with us irrespective of, of these surges of uh, pleasant or unpleasant or the sense of pleasant or unpleasant. So I mentioned, we've mentioned a few times this simile of the animals uh, tethered together with ropes and the way that they are pulling in different directions. And really, Vedana are the thing that pull, aren't they? And mindfulness of the body that we're cultivating, that we've been cultivating, is a way that we can really root ourselves into the, into the ground so that we don't get pulled around by the Vedana at all these different sense doors.
So what does the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the ways of establishing mindfulness, what does it tell us to do with regard to these Vedana? Basically, it says, when you're experiencing Vedana, know that you're experiencing Vedana. So it says, how bhikkhus or practitioners, does a practitioner abide contemplating Vedana as Vedana? Or feeling tones as feeling tones? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, a practitioner understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling a painful feeling, they understand, I feel a painful feeling. And when feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, they understand, I feel a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And the practitioner abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So there's no judgment around this experience of feeling tone. You know, feeling something as unpleasant doesn't make me a bad person. I think I can do that one to myself. I don't know if you catch yourself doing that, you know. Somehow that if, if I were a nicer person, I'd be having more pleasant experiences. That's an, that's an interesting one too. Um, it's just because I'm so disgruntled, you know, that everything's, everything's unpleasant. But there, there are many, many, many causes of, of pleasantness and unpleasantness arising. It's not all about moi, as we were talking about. You know, even the Buddha says this because there's debates over whether the pleasantness and the, the unpleasantness we experience. People ask him, is that all the result of your past karma? And he says, no, it can be the result of the weather and this and that and things. It's not all your fault what you're experiencing. But this point about not judging it, uh, also, we don't judge it, but we, we are um, invited to. This is the critical thing, is this piece about non-clinging. And the word is upadana, clinging. It's the same word there as also in the kind of really key map, which it explains the way that we... we uh, the Vedana generate reactivity and suffering, which is the, the teaching on dependent arising, on the dependent, particularly on the dependent arising of suffering. And there, there, there are 12 links in this chain of causation of suffering, but it's a chain that can, can be punctured at different places. And actually the most clear and obvious point at which this whole kind of system collapses is at the point of Vedana, which is also why we, we're really invited to bring awareness to them. So what happens is that there's a contact at one of the sense doors, and this generates Vedana, or comes with Vedana, or a feeling tone. And what happens in response to that is something called tanha, or craving. Tanha literally means thirst. So it's thirsting for either to have more of the experience or to get rid of the experience or thirsting for another experience. And that leads to clinging. And, you know, I don't get hung up on, well, what's the what's the, where's the boundary between clinging and, 
craving and clinging because I, I think it's more of a kind of it's a process that's happening and this is just a way of chunking it up but there's this there's this feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that shades into liking that shades into wanting that shades into clinging and then that leads to all kinds of mental proliferation and to behaviors that generate suffering but when we when we can stay steady and just witness this changing flow of sensation, then sometimes we have the opportunity to feel the sensation and not generate the thirst or the craving, or even if this craving starts to arise, not move further down the, the scale into clinging. Or we could, even we feel, you know, we, could, we can... Um, pause the process it becomes more difficult the more kind of caught up the further down the role you've got so sometimes we don't it's like I think Ajahn Chah um, the Thai master who was my teacher's teacher said this whole process is like falling out of a tree you know you don't really know what's happening until you've hit the ground and it hurts (laughs) this is kind of how it is but sometimes we can just catch that initial wobble where we're starting to fall out of the tree and you might you know it's really important that we notice the instances when this happens in our practice how we actually oh I didn't react to that thing you know I didn't go down my habitual response route and to to just really um, begin to empower ourselves with knowing that we don't need to be knocked around by every pleasant and unpleasant experience. And then sometimes we, it, you know, we will fall out of the tree and hit the ground, but if there's an understanding of how this process works, we can kind of look back and think, oh yeah, well that happened and that happened and I got caught there. And gradually the, the understanding and the wisdom grows. And then the next time maybe there's a slightly, um, you know, we catch it slightly earlier. And gradually, in this way, our underlying reactive tendencies um, are diminished. So the, I also want to mention uh, another aspect of the teaching in the, in the Satipatthana Sutta, because it, as well as inviting us to differentiate between pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings, it also invites us to differentiate between feelings, um, another two types of feeling, or two ty- to, to type two feeling, to type the feelings in another way. They're still pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, but to distinguish between what it calls um, sensory or material feelings and non-sensory or immaterial ones, or sometimes this is translated as worldly and unworldly and that's kind of um, a little bit mystifying and it's actually the precise meaning of these terms is is somewhat open to debate but how how I understand it as best I can is that there are um, the feelings that are connected with seeking sensual happiness And then there are the feelings that are connected with the happiness of the path to liberation from entanglement in the world. So there's sort of pleasures of 
you know, ordinary sensory gratification and the more um, spiritual pleasures, the pleasures of the mind that's gradually, uh, gradually experiencing a release from this kind of entanglement. And in practical terms, it's really, I think it's what it's doing is it's really orienting us to have a more and more refined understanding of what happiness actually is, what real happiness or real pleasure actually are. You know. So an example might be um, the experience of metta, of unconditional friendliness. I think that you did a little bit of metta practice this afternoon. And sometimes, you know, doing formal metta practice really hits the spot for people. Sometimes it doesn't. But whether it arises in your formal practice or in just ordinary life, sometimes we have this taste of experiencing unconditional friendliness. And that's a kind of happiness or pleasantness that's not caught up in some kind of sensory gratification or the experience of you know, feeling a spontaneous moment of gratitude or of generosity or of recognizing that we've some kind of pattern of mind that was um, bogging us down, maybe a a grudge that we were holding on to or a resentment against somebody has suddenly fallen away. It's a kind of, ah, oh, a releasing. Or the happiness of recognizing that, you know, that unskillful pattern that used to trap me all the time is no longer operating. So these sorts of happiness start to be discerned as, as more beneficial sources of pleasure than the gratification of getting my cup of coffee when I want it or my chocolate brownie or whatever. Yeah. And, and if, we, if we're really attuned to that, it also encourages, encourages us to look at how or to, to develop the capacity sometimes to choose to abandon the pull of a certain sort of pleasant experience or to endure another sort of unpleasant experience um, because we recognize that that can be more conducive to our long-term happiness. Yeah. So there's a whole topic area, which I won't speak about, that, that of, of renunciation and uh, resolve and sense restraint. Yeah. It's not really sexy stuff. And, in uh, Blackwell's, which is the, the academic bookshop in Oxford, which is really famous. So it's the, it's the main university bookshop that's hundreds of years old, and therefore it's a tourist attraction. So it's got all this, you know, the ground floor is full of really appealing displays of stuff. And I was showing Chris, I was in, in there the other day, and there's this whole bookcase full of things on mindfulness, like mindful cycling and mindful toothbrushing and, and all these things. But they, they, they don't have books on, you know, quite yet there on renunciation. Um, but we can, you know, we can see how this is actually something that has benefits, you know.
So I, I, for me, it's certainly been true that as I, as I you know, really practice with watching Vedana, the, the incentive, the capacity, and the, the natural tendency of the mind sometimes to choose restraint. And I'm sure this is operating for you also in areas of your life. That becomes stronger because the wisdom faculty is growing stronger. And, and this is really, you know, we, we need to clock this in, in relation to our addictive behavior patterns. And, and I'd say in the, in the understanding of Buddhist psychology, we all have addictive behavior patterns, just to, to varying degrees. So there's some interesting discoveries happening in the, the field of neuroscience, which some of you may know much more about than I do, but um, that actually mirror the way the Buddha talked about this kind of chain of, of pleasant liking, uh, wanting and, and clinging, craving and clinging. So then when they've studied the um, pleasure centers and the reward pathways in the brain, they're realizing that desire has an energy of its own that's kind of independent of the actual felt experience of pleasure. So that what happens is that we get addicted to this momentum of satisfying desire, even though the original experience of pleasantness that underlay the, the, that desire um, no longer is really operating. Or it's either the, the pleasure that we get from following that desire has decreased or isn't, is now entirely absent. So this is what happens with addict, addiction to, to some sorts of substances is that we still, the, the, the dependency, this habit is really reinforced, but actually the amount of pleasure that can be got from them is gone. Because there's, there's a liking that's connected with the Vedana, with the hedonic tone. And then there's a wanting that's part of a, a related but separate mechanism of um, what we call appetitive behavior, where we're kind of seeking to get something. And these two things generally without mindfulness are experienced as, as one and the same thing. But actually with... Um, a certain amount of contemplative skill or training, we can actually start to feel and identify the separateness or this, this kind of whoosh of falling out of the tree. You know, it, we, we kind of can see, see it in its component pieces or in slow motion. So I, I think that I had a, a small experience of this um, also on the same retreat with the hot chai earlier in this year and I was trying I was really I was actually doing some of this Mahasi noting practice where you really kind of note very meticulously what's what's present in awareness moment by moment by moment and um, one of the things I've had a lot of chance to work with or practice with or notice in my life and my practice is is itching because I had quite severe eczema as a baby and as a child and I don't really have it now but there's often if I'm tired or something there'll be some you know small manifestation of that and so I've had a lot of dukkha of suffering from the 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 world of itching and I was uh, in a, I think I was in a sitting and I was just watching what was happening. And I noticed this itch 
the unpleasant feeling of an itch on my head, I think. And I was, I started to, I thought, you know, I didn't go through this whole thing of I'm going to sit still, I'm going to ignore it. I said, okay, I'm going to scratch this itch. But I was watching what was happening and I started to move my hand towards it. And before my hand even got there, that sensation had disappeared. Mm. That sense of unpleasantness was so fleeting it had disappeared before, and I wasn't doing a super slow motion thing, you know, before I even got there, it had stopped happening. But if I hadn't been being that mindful, I wouldn't have noticed that. I'd have just continued that motion and scratched something that didn't even need scratching, you know. And we do, we're probably doing this a lot of the time, you know, or with, yeah, with, with food, for example, you know, there's an in initial impulse to want something and then you, you just kind of keep going with that momentum without actually checking in with the fact that, do I still really want this? And I'm, I've noticed that, you know, having a, a recurrent scratching habit in my life, that sometimes if there's this feeling of, of kind of unpleasantness happening, mild unpleasantness, it's like the, the body will look for some, something to scratch even though there's nothing itching because the relief, of the, there's a pleasure to satisfying the, the scratch. And actually all you do is you create a new itch, you know. So you probably don't want to know that much about my, my eczema history. But this, this is kind of how this mechanism works. And we all have our particular ways of, you know, having these things happening in our lives. And some of them are more socially acceptable than others and so on. But actually, we're all implicated in this kind of drama. So there's, there's so much um, freedom that can come from seeing this process clearly. And what the seeing of it does is gives us another choice. And in a sense, mindfulness alone won't do the job. That also then, you know, sometimes we need to exercise some restraint. And it's either restraining an unhelpful behavior or choosing to replace it with a helpful behavior. Yeah. But it's the awareness that gives us that choice and also that motivation so just, I wanted to give a 45-minute talk, but I haven't managed, I'm sorry, because I know that my Vedana quotient goes down as talks get longer and longer. But just one, one last thing that I want to say is, uh, you know, that the value of really observing Vedana, um, Is that I, well, that I like to point out how much Vedana are influencing us below the radar of our conscious awareness, and that this isn't just in you know in our personal life, but actually in our whole um, social field and in the collective realm in society. So, you know, all our implicit biases. And the way we, we favor certain things and groups and people um, without knowing us are primed, without knowing are primed by Vedana. So we, you know, we often favor people who resemble us or resemble stereotypes of what's being conditioned into us as desirable. Racial stereotypes, gender stereotypes, uh, stereotypes about physical attractiveness. And if we're not careful, this is all happening 
out of our awareness. And we, we're manipulated, aren't we? We can be manipulated by media, by advertising. Um, I, I've very much enjoyed recently reading the books of uh, Yuval Harari, you know, Homo Deus and the, his 21, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which is a book I recommend to people. His 21st lesson is we need to meditate. <laughs> and one of the reasons is that because uh, our minds are so vulnerable to influence by all these um, factors from the outside. And the, the less that we understand that process and have an awareness around it, the more vulnerable we all are. And this is actually something that the, the Buddha also noticed, is that um, Vedana are very much implicated in the way that we form and adhere to views. Okay? And the views and opinions were as much of a source of conflict in his day as they are in ours, possibly with not quite such colossal consequences or scale of consequences. Today, we're aware of, of things like confirmation bias. So the mind tends to experience what's familiar as pleasant and then to shy away or from or ignore, disregard what's unfamiliar because it generates cognitive dissonance, a feeling of discomfort in the mind. So we tend to uh, adhere to what's pleasant and hold on to that as true. So the mind processes information in a way that confirms its own presumptions. So they've done experiments, again, where the studies that show that the same piece of information can be picked up by two different people to confirm opposing opinions. You just use the information in a way that confirms your own opinion, even when you think you're not doing that, you know. So studies confirm this, and I think studies also suffer from this. Like there, there's so many studies around the efficacy of mindfulness, and I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm sure that there are many, many very reputable studies. But I think with with frequently we're setting out to prove what we already believe, and that influences you know, what emerges, and one can be more or less rigorous in about, about that. So I don't want to say we should never trust any studies and that all opinions are equally prejudiced and therefore none of them matter. But I think if we want to create a, a saner, happier world and uh, saner, happier personal lives, then learning to understand Vedana is essential. And how much more inner and outer conflict could be avoided? How much more creative cooperation could there be if we were more alert to Vedana and less reactive to them? So that's more than enough. How are your Vedana now? <laughs> <laughs> So let's just pause for a moment together.
So thank you very much for your attention. And we'll have a period for walking meditation now till quarter to nine and come back for our last sit. Is it quarter to nine? Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.